This is the Tomorrow Christian Today, reading Deuteronomy 23 in the NLT. But first and always, we pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Your word brings joy. Your word brings hope. Your word brings a fresh end to my day, which has been okay. But somehow there's an infusion of joy to think that I can read your word. It's a great honor. It's a great privilege. And Lord, um, take me higher and who else, whoever else wishes to listen to these words to realize they're your words to us. Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing. In the name of Christ, I pray. Please forgive our sins. Amen. Regulations concerning worship. Well, I tell you, I can't really, I don't feel comfortable reading this. I mean, this is pretty explicit. So I could, all I can say is Deuteronomy 23, verses 1. It says, if a man's privates are crushed or cut off, he may not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Uh, I would be very curious as to why that would be the case. Um, I wonder why that is the case. So I think that I will try to see if I can look up very quickly any kind of commentary about that. I should have done that before. So if I go quickly into a Bible that I have here and I try to read quickly why that would be the case. So if a man has been in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and he's been hurt in a certain place, So we're talking about the sanctification, the sanctification of people. So, um, discouragement to shameful sexual misconduct because they were born. Okay. So it doesn't really give, um, it doesn't really uh, give a reason that I see in the study Bible here as to why that is the case. Somebody has been injured, why they would be excluded. So I'm going to assume that I don't know everything about this first, but it seems kind of a harsh criteria of exclusion. Anyways, the, um, the Lord has a reason for it. And moving on. If a person is illegitimate by birth, neither he nor his descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of the descendants for 10 generations may be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. These nations do not welcome you with food and water. When you came out of Egypt, instead they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and distant Aram, Naharam, to curse you. And that was in Numbers 23. But the Lord your God refused to listen to Balaam. He turned the intended curse into a blessing because the Lord your God loves you. So we know that God loved the other nations too, but it just seems that from this, God is very for Israel and anybody else that's different is excluded. So it is a religion in a way in that it sort of excludes who's in and who's out. And nobody really wants to hear that. We all want to be included into God. But this is the Old Testament. This is criteria. This is, um, this is, this is an exclusionary. This is perfection or very high standards. It's almost like God is the law. He's loved to. God accepts, but at the same time, he has very high standards. And the law almost seems loveless. Right when Paul says in Galatians 3.10, you put yourself back under the law and that there's no way that you can reach God. Because if you try to reach God with incredibly high standards, with knowledge, with information only, where there's no relationship, you'll never reach God. 
as many questions as you try to answer, there'll be um, double or triple the number of questions that arise. As long as you live, you must never promote the welfare and prosperity of the Ammonites or Moabites. So they were traditionally the enemies of Israel, and God is telling uh, Israel, or Moses is telling Israel, not to promote their wealth, welfare, and prosperity. Do not detest the Edomites or the Egyptians, because the Edomites are your relatives, and you lived as foreigners among the Egyptians. The third generation of Edomites and Egyptians may enter the assembly of the Lord. So there's already a sense of acceptance here. So there is, there does seem to be exclusion in these verses, but there's also acceptance as well. And again, these are my opinions. Um, they may not be good opinions or thoroughly theological opinions. I don't tell you what to think. I ask you to think about what I tell you. But at least we're reading God's words. At least we're reading these words to understand um, to understand that God put them there to understand, and to try to grapple with the reasons why. When you go to war against your enemies, be sure to stay away from anything that is impure. Well, I think that that, that is the whole point. God is purifying us. He's sanctifying us. This is what Jesus came to do to purify our hearts, to change our perspective and to change our motivations from the flesh, which is the unassisted, with the God unassisted part of our being, to the God-sanctified, the God-centric part of our being that God is trying to grow. And, and that's what salvation is. God is doing it. We cannot do it for ourselves. God is doing it in us. Salvation is beyond our feeble attempts to secure by our own efforts. Verse 10, any man who becomes ceremonially defiled because of a nocturnal emission must leave the camp and stay away all day. Towards evening, he must bathe himself and at sunset, he may return to the camp. Wow, these are really strict. You must have a designated area outside the camp where you go to relieve yourself. Each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with the spade and cover the um, cover the excrement. The camp must be holy for the Lord your God moves around in your camp to protect you and to defeat your enemies. He must not see any shameful thing among you or he will turn away from you. So obviously this, is, this sounds like hygiene. This sounds like keeping the camp... Um, Pure, and I did. I did remember reading something by Barclay, William Barclay. He's a commentator, a commentator of the New Testament, and he was saying how the ancient world was very dirty, very filthy, as if people didn't have an attention to details. And you know, as David Pawson said, cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm just wondering, didn't the Egyptians like they came out of Egypt, right? So they were kind of like the society that they were part of. Didn't the society know these rules of hygiene? Like, didn't the Egyptians know these things? Is it just because is it just because they were in a camp outside and they weren't in cities and streets and civil civilization? And God is like saying, okay, just because you're not in a city, just because it's not there's not designated places, doesn't mean you can all let it go to pot, so to speak. If you excuse the irony, so I guess God still wanted to maintain rules of hygiene, and He didn't want them to get dirty or sloppy. And dirty or sloppy doesn't just mean having grime on you. It means controlling disease. I, I've heard from many different sources that during the Black Plague, um, the Jewish people were very attentive, very meticulous about hygiene, about um, rules of cleanliness. And because of that, they did not get affected so much by the, by the bubonic plague Right? I think it was the bubonic plague. So they didn't get affected by it like everybody else around them. 
So, and maybe the bubonic plague is that was carried by the rats, right? So the thing is, since they did not get affected by this plague, a lot of people blame the Jewish race as a conspiracy theory for the fact that they had unleashed it on other people, which is certainly not true. I must repeat, that's not true. And that, that's an example of anti-Semitism, and that's just wrong. Hatred of any race is wrong. And that should not exist, and no, no hatred of any race should exist. Under our skin, under our culture, we're all the same color. As Ben Carson said, we all ble bleed red blood. So that's just totally wrong. Verse 15, if slaves should escape from their masters and take refuge with you, you must not hand them over to their masters. Let them live among you in any town they choose and do not oppress them. No Israelite, whether man or woman, may become a temple prostitute. Obviously, God wants people to take care of their bodies. He wants them to protect their, 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 their sexuality. And I've heard, you know, this lady was uh, talking to somebody on an interview on YouTube and she was saying that some of these people who do these kinds of jobs, like in the movies and stuff like that, um, it affects them mentally. And, and, and there's so much depression and the people are taking drugs to, and, and some of them were even um, killing themselves. She was talking about this. She, she was in this business and she got out of this business. And I guess she was talking to somebody that was Christian. I assume that she was Christian herself, but she was involved in this business. And she says, these people are not okay. This, uh, the, uh, doing this with your bodies affects your mind. So God wants you to preserve your body and your mind. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of nastiness on the internet. There's a lot of this material on the internet. And this is immoral. When you are bringing an offering to fulfill a vow, you must not bring to the house of the Lord any offering from the earnings of a prostitute, whether a man or a woman from both, for both are detestable to the Lord your God. God does not want you to transact your body, and he doesn't want you to take the money for that and put it into the tithe. Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite. Whether you loan money or food or anything else, you may charge interest to foreigners, but you may not charge interest to Israelites so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you do in the land you are about to enter and occupy. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, be prompt in fulfilling whatever you promised him for the Lord your God demands that you promptly fulfill all your vows or you will be guilty of sin. However, it is not a sin to refrain from making a vow, but once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. And I would say that probably goes for marriage. And there's a lot of people who don't believe in God who would never darken the doors of a church except to get married or for a christening of a baby. And they would say that people, when they get married, you should stick to the vows. For better or for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. And that's what people used to say a long time ago. And I don't know if really it's changed, but, you know, you said a vow like that and you meant it. Like marriage is not a common thing. You made a vow before God and you kept it. It's not easy for two people uh, to live together uh, under the same roof. And as one lady said, a Christian lady in, in an Instagram video, she said, you're going to pick your partner that's going to go with you through life. Make sure you have some common things. Make sure that you have a lot of things in common. One of them being, as she would say, your spirituality, your faith. If you're a believer and you're marrying an unbeliever, you're, you're headed for problems. 
if you're two unbelievers and one person becomes a believer, I think in my case, although my ex would not argue that she's not an unbeliever, but if you become a believer in Christ, trusting in Christ, and your partner is not, then your partner, you know, they might leave. If you are a believer and you're trying to marry somebody thinking you can change them, you are taking a chance. That being said, somebody could say, well, you're a believer, you marry another believer, there's no guarantee that the marriage is going to stay together. That's true. You cannot guarantee anything, but you could minimize the odds of the marriage blowing up. That being said, do as I say, not as I do. Rules for me and rules for thee. I'm divorced. So if your marriage is working, kudos to you. You're a better man or woman than I am. There's not a sin to, for, for once you have voluntarily made a vow, be careful to fulfill your promise to the Lord your God. Verse 24, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, but you must not carry any away in a basket. And when you enter your neighbor's field of grain, you may pluck the heads of the grain with your hand, but you must not harvest it with a sickle. So, that's some of the miscellaneous regulations that God provided for his people. Obviously, God knows the reasons why he did what he did. And he wants us to trust him. He wants us to love him. He doesn't want us to figure him out. But it's supposed to be a relationship. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. That's what the Shema says. Leviticus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's exactly the two commandments that Jesus built the gospel on. That he died for our sins our sins have been we have been justified by faith and jesus is sanctifying our hearts through the spirit of christ to be the kind of people that trust in our heavenly father hold tight to our heavenly father cling to our heavenly father through jesus the redeemer and we are waiting on god because he said that he was coming that he will appear the second time unto salvation for those who are excited about the appearance about his appearance that's what it says. And I believe it. Short one today. Thanks for listening. God bless you all. Take care. Go with God.